0: These are very memorable passages in the Bible, I think. Um, if if you, you, you might even call them slogans, okay? And, and you know what a slogan is, right? We can do a little word association. How about we do this, okay? Um, I, will, I will do a couple of phrases and you tell me who they're associated with. Just do it. Thank you. The real thing. Coca-Cola. Think different. come on apple thank you apple yeah no that's that's actually their current one even um yeah (laughs) did you have a different idea oh okay all right everybody loves a good slogan it's short it's memorable it's purposeful it's catchy enough to stick with you it's deep enough to mean something and we live in a world of slogans and sound bites um where we work hard to cram maximum meaning into minimum word count. And spiritually, I grew up with slogans as well. Name me a spiritual slogan. Give me one. Speak where the Bible Bible. Oh, man. Speak where the Bible is. And you know what? I actually found out that's not true, because where the Bible speaks, we speak. And where the Bible's silent, we talk a whole lot more than that. You know? <laughs> Have you noticed that? Yeah. Okay, so there's that. What? Anybody else? Give me another one. What? Hi. Was that in youth group or like? Okay, yeah. Okay, That's a good line. Um, just tuck that one away, I guess. Um. How about this one? Like. Everybody remember the bracelet that says "WWJD" on it? What would Jesus do? Yeah, it's a good slogan. It's a good reminder. Um, my 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 favorite one in youth group was not greet one another with a holy kiss. Although I need to reexamine my life because that would have been a good one. Um, it was it, my favorite from my youth minister. Base rule for every trip we ever took: don't be stupid. Like that was basically the filter for every action idea or idea that we would entertain on a mission trip or a camp or a retreat or a service project or anything it was like don't be stupid. <laughs> I expanded that when I went into youth ministry and said, "Look, if everybody goes closer to God and nobody goes to the emergency room, it is a successful youth event." There we go. Don't fight naked, put on the Shelly. <laughs> Awesome. I'm I'm gonna have to write these down. Like, like, these are gonna be sermon titles. You just watch, right? It's funny. Like, you say that, but then, like, Jr.'s older brother Joel, like, and Greg and and I in college, we came up with the "Stop Christian Streaking" youth event that never got off the ground, but that was basically what it was. We got a whole lot of people running around with the helmet of salvation on and nothing else. Like, you know, all right. You just watch, that's going to be coming, okay? All church retreat, you just watch, it'll it'll be coming. No. There's a drawback to slogans, though. They get really familiar. They get too familiar. Like that phrase that your parents say over and over again to you, and you hear it, but you don't really hear it anymore. Or at least you don't hear it with fresh and full intention anymore. You already know what they mean as soon as the first word is off their lips. And so you just move forward with what you know. I did it. I know my kids do it. Like I can see them. Like I can hear their eyes roll sometimes. Like when when it happens. When I start to talk and they're like, oh, dad's doing that thing again. Yeah, yeah. It is easy for us to become so familiar with certain phrases that they lose their meaning for us. And this, and, and this morning, we are looking at two parts of the Bible in the Old and the New Testament that are super popular. If you don't believe me, go do a search on Etsy right now for Micah 6.8 and see how many things you can get do justice, love mercy, walk humbly plastered on and how much they cost. Oh my goodness, all right? Wow. It, and the Sermon on the Mount is the same way. It is chock full of short powerful statements that we know really well you are the light of the world you can't serve two masters don't worry no that's Bobby McFerrin that's not that's that's not that's not uh, but but the idea is that then yeah I think that was maybe part of his source material I think anyway But the Beatitudes that we read this morning, literally it means the supreme or the best or the exalted blessings, are one of the first things that I memorized in Scripture as a kid in Sunday school. We can get them, we can remember them, we can stick with them, and they stick with us. However, the same pitfall remains. Like those phrases that become so familiar, both of these sections of Scripture have a tendency to lose their impact. We already know what Jesus is saying, we already know how that verse goes. And so we kind of turn our hearts off and we move, to, we move to simple recitation rather than deep meditation, rather than reflection. And even more, I think like sometimes we've decided that while these things are nice, while what God says to Israel in Micah 6 is nice, while what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount is nice, It's unrealistic. That's my real fear. When it gets so rote, is is that it gets unrealistic. Jesus is asking us to do something that is beyond our capabilities, and we've come to terms with that, or at least we've grown comfortable with the idea that we can't measure up to that. And so Jesus' words become far removed from our reality. And and do justice, love mercy, walk humbly looks good on our wall, or it looks good on our car bumper but it doesn't really make it past our devotionals and into our hearts and into our lives. That's my fear. And so I want to expand on both of these readings a little bit today. I I want to connect them together, and I want to connect them to the whole story of the Bible and to help us just hear something that's fresh and something that's compelling and something that we can actually embrace and live out of. And so I want to take us back to Micah 6, and I want to help us get the setting for what's going on. How many of you have seen the People's Court or Judge Judy? Oh, oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> Barb is that you like you like Judge Judy? I think she's hilarious too. I think her facial expressions alone are awesome. She is listening to something, and you can just see her going like. Like you could see her like literally growing older. Like, like I wasted my day. Oh, I, she must be getting paid a lot to listen to that. That's all I'm saying. Like some of the stuff that comes up there, it's great. So you kind of think you've been to court, right? Or at least you, you kind of imagine what that looks like, okay? Let's imagine God going to court. Let's imagine God going to court. Who is going to be the jury? Well, he calls up a jury. He calls up and he and he calls it the mountains and he calls it the foundations of the earth, okay? This is a covenant dispute of epic proportions, okay? God assembles the mountains and the foundations of the earth as witnesses. If you look in the Bible, you see like one of the big things that that keeps kind of coming up with Israel is like they, especially if you go back to like first Kings, second Kings, you keep seeing this charge against the Kings. They don't remove the high places. They don't remove the high places. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the mountains, the foundations of the earth, because in that, in that mindset, the high places and the mountains are seats of divine power. Okay, We can read this as a calling for creation, all of creation, to come bear witness to this dispute that God has with Israel, but there's even another piece of it. It's this idea of the divine court where God is Elohim. He is the most high God, and these other gods like Dagon and Baal and Molech and Asherah and all these other ones that you hear like Israel being accused of having idolatry with, they're like the suzerains, they're the vassals, they're the royal courts. They're the ones who are supposed to be helping God, but the problem is they've elevated themselves to gods in their own society. They're still, under his, they're still supposed to be under his power, but they're, they're not. And that's kind of where you get the whole idea of monotheism in Israel, is there's only one God worth worshiping. These others are supposed to be his helpers. They're not other gods. But whether it's, whether it's creation or whether it's, or whether it's like a king and his lords, a king and his, you know, his royal court, they're all assembled and they're coming to hear the dispute and judge. And the defendant is God's own people, Israel. And God does something really incredible at first. He has a strong case against Israel refusing to live up to their end of the covenant with him, But he lets them go first. Usually it's the defendant that goes second. He lets the defendant go first. He says, you know what? Fine. You bear witness. How have I, quite literally, he says, how have I let you down, Israel? Maybe there's some evidence that I'm not holding up my end of the relationship. Go for it. Talk to me. And then God says, it's very, very clear that he's done nothing of the sort. I haven't let you down. On the contrary, I raised you up out of Egypt. I called you out of slavery. I made you free. I made you mine. When others tried to curse you, my divine power was at work to change it into blessing. When you didn't live up to your end, even when we were in the wilderness, I didn't leave you to wander in the wilderness at this place called Shittim, okay? Okay. Punishing you for your transgressions by compromising yourself with the with the Moabites, with their gods. I still split the Jordan River open, and I invited you into the promised land, and let you worship and consecrate yourselves on the other side at Gilgal. That's why he brings up those two things there. Because one of them's on one side of the promised land outside of the promised land, and the other one's the first stop inside the promised land. And right at the step of, right at the outside of the promised land, Israel is still compromising. And you could see, and I mean, that's after all the wandering. Like, God could have said, like, okay, I guess we're not ready once more around the desert for another 40 years, okay? But he doesn't. He splits the Jordan, he lets them walk in anyway. And he lets them consecrate themselves over on the other side at Gilgal. He says, like, like how am I not holding up to my end of the bargain here? You almost get a sense that God's kind of going, like, I... How much more do I have to say here? You know the rest of the story. And then after God brings all that up, there's a change in voice. So God said his piece. He's like, look, I, you can't, you know, I've already basically the, the, the whole part of Micah, like all the last five chapters of Micah has been God presenting, you know, like the, the problem. And then he brings them to court and says, all right, Here's the deal. I know I've lived up to my thing. We've already talked about yours. What's going to go, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to mend this, this, this broken relationship? And the voice changes to Israel. And it's interesting. Because I don't know what the voice is. You know, like the tone of somebody's voice, like when you get an email. And you're like, I really wish I could hear this person say this email to me. Rather than just be reading it right now. Because I would really like to know with what tone they are saying this thing to me. Like, is there a tone of like, you're an idiot under this? Or are they, do they just, they're just really, they think I just don't know? Or are they like, you have the IQ of a toad. And I can't believe I have to put this into email for you. You know, like what level of passive aggressiveness is there in this? Okay, And I don't know the tone behind Israel's response here. It could be desperation. What am I going to do to make this right? It could be a little snarky. There could be some sarcasm here. Look, seriously... What is it going to take to make this thing right between us? How long are you going to hold this exodus thing over us as collateral? Huh? What is going to appease you? Seriously. Sacrifices? Multiple sacrifices? Rivers of oil? Oh, I know. How about we start sacrificing our firstborn kids? Will that do it? What's it going to take, God? I'm tired of hearing how I'm not living up to this end. See, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's desperation or if I don't know that it's just Israel that's like, I am so tired of hearing how I don't live up to my end of the bargain. I don't know which one it is. Whichever one it is, I do know this. If God's going to play the guilt card, nothing's going to suffice because we can't do it. I do know that. Okay? I do know that if God talking to them about what he's done for them is just to play the guilt card over their head, nothing's going to ever be made right in this relationship because they can't make it right. I also know that if God now is playing the Jesus card over me, For guilt, nothing's going to be made right in my relationship with God because I can't make up for that. I can't cross that gap. Neither can you. None of us can. So I have to say that's probably not what he's all about here. In fact, I don't think that's ever been what he's about. God's never been about trying to hold how good he is over how bad you are. God's been about trying to remind you and me about how earnestly He wants to move in our direction and make things right between us. And God, so God completely ignores that question. What's it gonna take? What what kind of offering do we need to do to settle things? You know what? Okay, fine. I'm we're guilty. What's the penance? How much do we got to pay? How much time do we have to spend in spiritual jail? Like, what do we got to do? And God completely ignores that. And instead, he tells them what they really need to know, which is, hey, you're missing the point. He says, the issue is not what we bring to God. It's what we care about. Offerings are transactions that you and I can dispense and check off of our list whether it's like animal sacrifices back in the day or whether it's church attendance today, whether it's, you know, like the rivers of oil, you know, that Solomon offers out, you know, in the hundreds and thousands of rams that he sacrifices on behalf of the nation back in the day, or whether it's like the big church check that you cut and put in the plate. That's not, that's just transactional. And God's not interested in a transactional relationship with us at all. He's never been interested in a relationship where it's like I give you grace and you give me this. I, I give you, I give you salvation. You give me your life. That's that's not. That's not what this is about. God's not doing business transactions with salvation. God is transforming lives and drawing us into his family. That's what he's about. That's what he's always been about. Virtues are things that are embraced and owned and synthesized into our lives. They sink into our character because of who God is and who we are. That's what he's talking about. And these virtues that that Micah mentions, this idea of like doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God, those aren't anything new or novel. They sit at the heart of the commands that God gives at Sinai, the, the relationship covenant, the way that we live with God. They fall off the lips of Moses in Deuteronomy. They fall off the lips of David in the Psalms. And they aren't really controversial either, if you think about it. I feel like most people are not going to argue with being just or merciful, or humble. I have not seen many folks wandering around with shirts or bumper stickers that say, arrogant and proud of it. That was a joke. Think about it for a second. Oh, yeah. All right. I see what you did there. What makes those virtues significant to God and to us is that they're features of relationship, not outstanding obligations to balance our spiritual ledgers. In fact, each of them begins as God's attitude toward us. There's never a time when God is not interested in making things right between himself and humanity. There's never a time when God isn't interested in finding ways to treat us better than we deserve. There has never been a time when God hasn't been stooping downward, leaving glory in search of reconciliation, moving our direction first instead of standing up on high waiting us for us to get our stuff together and act right and the interesting thing is god stops speaking plurally now he was talking in the plural like to israel as a whole but when he says i have shown you he goes singular instead of he turns to the mortal We, you know, like some, some say, oh man, or whatever, but really what he's saying is I've shown you, and it's in the, in the Hebrew, there is hadama, like you, you beautiful little spirit of breath of God infused dirt clod is really what he is. That's really, that's really what human means. Okay. Is this, this really interestingly spirit of God infused dirt clod. I can't even, I can't. Can't talk to you about the majesty and the, and, the, the, and the roughness of what this word means. But he just says, I've shown you the good. I've shown you the good in me. I've shown you the good from the way I live. And, and what do I really want from you? I just really want you to love me the way that I love you. That's, that's really what I want. I just want you to reflect back to me the love that I'm giving you. That's that's really what I want. I've shown you the good way is what the Hebrew literally translates God's word as. And I want you to reflect my heart by walking in it. And they aren't really disembodied virtues either. When we read the rest of Micah 6 and 7, we see a host of ways embodying God's heart of justice and mercy and humility. Ethical business deals, honest speech, a refusal to resort to petty manipulation or oppression, countering violence in all of its forms. These are, these, this is, he's like, this is what it looks like. Those are just as a beginning. They're big ideas, but they get lived out in the little stuff. God says they permeate our lives because of who we are. Israel's being in right relationship with God defines their doing. They aren't doing it in order to be right with God. They are right with God, and that defines what they do. Same thing for you and me. The outcome of the royal case then is the covenant still holds because God's faithful, even though there's been a breach. And Israel is asked one more time to live out of the fullness of their relationship with God and how they reverence him and reverence those people that are created in his image. Wait, I thought the sermon was about Jesus and the Beatitudes. Like, when are we going to get to that point? Okay, we're going there now. All right. I want to frame, though, what Jesus is saying and doing as a continuation of what's happening in Micah 6, though. So we can kind of feel the gravity of what's going on here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, too. Jesus goes up to a high place. It's the Sermon on the what? Oh, the mountain. (laughs) See what's happening? All right. He's going up to a high place again. He's going up to the seat of power and creation. Even the powers are once again being called on as a witness to Jesus. The perfect expression of of God's justice and mercy and humble, steadfast love. And he begins his inaugural address over the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven. And it starts the same way. I have shown you the good way. Here's what it looks like. 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the message of the cross as foolishness to our common wisdom and understanding. That ultimate expression of justice and mercy and humility will always confound us as humanity. Of, of Like, really, that's the answer. The cross is the answer to the justice and the mercy and the humility of God. yes it is always going to seem counterintuitive as to how to embrace the good life. The character of the king and his kingdom. Jesus' whole life, though, is wrapped up in these virtues. His teaching, his proclaiming, his healing, all of it. It is what the eternal word of God has been doing from the very beginning. It is what he is doing right now at the right hand of God. It is what the Holy Spirit is doing through you and in you every single day and will be doing until and after the reconciliation of all things when he returns someday. Like, do you see that? Like, it, like that justice and mercy and humility, it may stand high at the cross, but it's what God's been doing all along. It's what he's been doing all the way in the past. It's what Jesus did with his whole life. It's what Jesus is doing in us and through us now and all the way until he reconciles all things to himself. And then what's going to happen? We will be doing justice and we will be loving mercy and we will be walking humbly with our God for eternity in ways that I cannot even imagine. And it's ironic. Jesus talks to us directly in the Beatitudes and says striking things about who we are. And yet one of our greatest mistakes would be to think that the Beatitudes and, enti- and indeed the entire Sermon on the Mount is about us. It's not about us. It's about his kingdom. It's about Jesus, the king, and the kingdom of that he rules, and the features of his kingdom, and the features of the people that inhabit his kingdom. I want to read the Beatitudes to you again, but I want to read them in a different way so that you can hear them with a different voice for a second. Listen to this. When Jesus saw his ministry was drawing huge crowds, he climbed up on a mountainside, and those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, they climbed up with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You are blessed when you feel that you have lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who truly is most dear. You are blessed when you are content with just who you are, no more and no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. You are blessed when you've worked up an appetite for God and his way of life. He is food and drink in the best meal that you will ever eat. You are blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you will find yourselves cared for. You are blessed when you get your inside world, your mind, and your heart put right because then you can see God in the outside world. You are blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of competing or fighting. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You are blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. That persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom and his family. Not only that, you should count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to try and discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. And you can be glad when that happens. You can even cheer. For though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds and know that you're in good company because my prophets and my witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble you can almost see us, you know, like I do solemnly swear that I am up to no good for the kingdom of heaven. Okay, like like that's, that's almost kind of what it feels like a little bit. You get this little smile like, okay, that's the kind of trouble I could get into. See, the Beatitudes are not some graduation speech from a wise or witty famous person explaining the nine secrets to a successful life. They are not A how to be a happy Christian who knows your name is in the book of life book. It is not Jesus' little instruction book either. It is a rallying cry proclaiming the image of the kingdom and calling out those who would be drawn into that kingdom. This is the way. Walk in it. It might help us a little to hear these in two categories. Directed to two situations in life that I think are really important. The first four, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, right? Blessed are the meat, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, okay? Those first four identify people who are overlooked by the kingdoms of the world. The poor, the destitute, the desperate, the weak, the marginalized, depressed, the outsiders. And Jesus says this, you have great value in the eyes of your father. And you belong in his kingdom because you are his children. We can never say that enough. So the gospel message for you today, if you feel like an outsider, welcome in. Welcome home. This is for you. This is your family. This is your kingdom. This is where you belong. We're going to have times when we experience these things. And it's then more than ever that we need to know that we're still God's children. And when things are good, we, like Israel, should remember our roots. God called us in to be his children, not because of what we could bring to the table, but because of his justice and his mercy and his humble, steadfast love. That's who we are. So we live out of it. The second four slash five, it's kind of divided into two. Remind us of how to live out of that identity. In a world that is hostile and is constantly at war with God and itself and each other, we are called to make peace. In a world of injustice, we are called to remain uncompromised and seek God's purity always, not just for us, but for those around us too. In a world that tries to climb higher on the backs of other people, we move downward in the path of our king and we make mercy a reality. In a world of pain and need, we follow our king and inoppose ourselves into those things on behalf of others to bring life and redemption, even if it hurts us, maybe especially when it hurts us to do so. That's what it really means to be blessed, says Jesus. That's what it really means to take hold of the abundant and full life. And, and that's not going to fit on a bumper sticker real well. That's not, you know, like, that's not going to fit. I don't, I don't see many wall hangings in people's houses that say, blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of God because you're hanging with the prophets and the messengers of God. It doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't sound very very motivational. But that is the real abundant life. That is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's where true purpose and true destiny is found. And that's where we really sit with Jesus in that justice and mercy and humility. That's where we find it. How's that for a slogan? It's much more than a hashtag, and it is much more than giving God lip service when things go well. Blessed. It's finally finding your fit in the world and the reason you were created. It's being caught up in the great story of God and letting it permeate us again. Filtering down into our eyes and our ears and our feet and our hands and our heart and our days. And here's the best part. God's not looking for heroes. He's not looking for people who have it all together and can do this thing. He is looking for followers, even foolish ones that shame the wise and the strong of this world because they know who they are and they know whose they are and they live like it. Success or failure, good or bad, they're God's children and they know his heart. That's who he's really looking for. And so as we move to worship and as we move to communion and as we move to the table, I want to bless you in the name of God today. Blessings on you, church. May you do justice because you know the just God and his justice in your life. May you hold tightly to mercy because God mercifully holds tight to you. May you walk humbly with him because he has humbled himself and he walks with you even now. And may you truly be blessed that you may be a blessing to others because you truly know the blessings of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's praise God together.